Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. When he was a kid, Stephen Brill was an avid reader. And in 1964, he read a book about the recently assassinated President John F. Kennedy. The book mentioned that Kennedy attended a high school in Connecticut called Choate. Brill lived in far Rockaway, Queens, and he had never heard of Choate, nor did he know anything about elite, costly boarding schools. Brill's parents owned a liquor store. He went to public school. They didn't have the money for prep school, and they were Jewish, which in the mid-1960s was not really a tried-and-true formula for ending up in bastions of elitism. But Brill did. He found himself at Deerfield Academy in Massachusetts, which is a lot like Choate, and the headmaster told his parents that they could just pay the school whatever they could afford. Brill went on to Yale and Yale Law School, and he started to understand how the famous Old Boys Network worked. It used to matter at a Wall Street law firm if you, you know, if you played on the lacrosse team with someone at, at uh, Princeton, you were more likely to get a job and then a partnership at that firm, and it wasn't necessarily based on how smart you were. But Brill saw that that way of doing things was changing. Apart from Jewish students and low-income students, women also started attending elite colleges. Stephen Brill argues that changing who attended private high schools and Ivy League colleges and law school, that had a ripple effect. But what seemed like a win, he says in his new book, Tailspin, touched off a strange phenomenon. A phenomenon in which high achievers remade industries one by one. When Brill graduated from Yale Law School, he decided to start a magazine called The American Lawyer. And it looked at law not only as a business, but as an increasingly competitive business. So I had um, a front row seat, and I also uh, was responsible for um, a lot of the damage I'm about to describe, which is that the law firms became you know, much, uh, much more competent because they were hiring much more competent people. Now, the good news is that meant they were hiring women, they were hiring Jews, they were even starting to hire non-whites based on their smarts. That's the good news. The bad news is that they were able to pay these people uh, you know, so much money because there was a, a real competition for talent that they became uh, much tougher and smarter and able to defend the corporate clients who could afford to pay them. What happened, and remember, it was not just happening in the legal field, what happened was that a crop of brilliant lawyers helped wealthy clients and corporations gain all sorts of advantages that had never been dreamt up before. Uh, That led to exotic new feats of legal engineering, such as uh, the corporate uh, takeover fight, or stock buybacks, or leverage buyouts, all things that turn the economy into a casino rather than a place where companies expanded, invested, um, and kept providing you know, new jobs and new opportunities for the middle class. In the process, of course, these lawyers got very rich. And Brill's magazine, The American Lawyer, fueled the competition that already existed by comparing the earnings of firms and partners along with their accomplishments. Pro bono work diminished because there was such a fight to get ahead and to stay ahead. Brill argues that this new crop of lawyers, with all their ingenuity, slowed down the wheels of government, even though, he says, many of them were personally liberal folks who believed in the power of government. Um, In 1974, the first OSHA regulation concerning, uh, you know, job safety uh, was written, and it took less than a year to write it, and it was 10 pages long. Uh, In 2016... 
the last OSHA regulation that was written took over 19 years to write and was 600 pages long. Wow. That's because everyone involved hired lawyers, mm. you know, to fight with OSHA, right. to contest it, to use another great American virtue, due process, <laughs> which, as I explained in the book, has also been hijacked. And, um, you know, uh, these regulations or blocking these regulations or delaying these regulations is worth billions of dollars to corporations who are happy to pay Washington lawyers to do everything they can to gum up the works, and they've succeeded. But as I said, this phenomenon was not limited to the law. It was happening in finance, in media, in politics, which, like powerful forces of nature, came together to produce something unexpected and scary. But it didn't look like a storm. Everything looked really good. You know, the first time someone invented um, a derivative um, in order uh, to finance mortgages, for example, that was seen correctly as a very smart invention that allowed mortgages to be uh, more available to uh, the middle class and, inc- and increase middle class home ownership. Mm-hmm. It just, as with many things in the tailspin, it got to be too much of a good thing. You know, one derivative became a more exotic derivative, which became a crazier derivative and a still crazier derivative until we had the crash. And all of that is the sum total of very smart people trying to achieve as much as they could. And what broke down because of uh, the dominance of money in politics and polarization, what broke down was the process by which a country or any community balances out that kind of overachievement uh, with uh, with uh, the guardrails that stop people from going too far and hurting the common good. So I guess I wonder where then... Like, where do you lay the blame? Because is it, you know, a a bank's fault, let's say, that they hired a Ph.D. in math or physics or whatever to to come up with this derivative and then hired a Ph.D. in computer science to, you know, come up with the algorithms that would would uh, enshrine this in the system? Is it those people's fault? Is it the fact that 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 was all fine, but like the regulators were nowhere to be seen? I just wonder, like, was it all these things together or was something the problem? It was all these things together. And it's no one's real fault because you can only see this if you play the movie back in slow motion. Mm -hmm. Because if you're playing it at regular speed, it just looks like good, smart people doing good, inventive things in order to advance uh, their careers. You know, uh, there are, you know, a few villains in the book uh, uh, Newt uh, Gingrich um, is kind of a villain because he really led the way for the kind of you know uncivil, uh, you know polarized uh, politics that we had never seen. We have a contract with America. We had 330 candidates sign the contract. We put it in TV Guide as a full-page ad. We told the American people to tear it out, put it on the refrigerator door, and then if we got to be a majority, tune in on January 4th on C-SPAN and watch us keep our word. And the fact but. His ability to do that was the result of yet another, uh, you know, trailblazing breakthrough, which was the advent of cameras in the Congress. Hmm. You know, he used to go on, uh, you know, C-SPAN in order to make headlines. And if C-SPAN hadn't been there, he wouldn't have been able to do it. So, you know, other than that, and there are a couple of other instances like that, it's basically, you know, people doing so well in their chosen professions that... uh, they're able to jump the guardrails. And 
you know, whose fault it is? Well, it's obviously the fault of, uh, you know, politicians in Washington, for example, who, you know, succumb to the temptation of always uh, working for the short term, always, you know, worrying about, you know, this election and, uh, you know, denying their opponents uh, the kinds of victories that, you know, the Republicans used to always allow Democratic presidents to have, uh, you know, victories. And, you know, the Democrats always used to let Republican presidents have victories when it came to, you know, major bipartisan legislation. That just stopped. Mm. We can't even pass a simple increase in the gas tax to keep the roads from crumbling. The gas tax has actually gone down since 1993 because it is a tax on, uh, you know, gasoline per gallon. But everybody knows that they can drive a lot, uh, you know, further on a gallon of gas now than they could in the 1970s and 1980s. So the yield from the gasoline tax has gone down, you know, dramatically. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You mentioned th- this notion of having um, cameras in Congress. I-, I talked to Brian Lamb, you know, not not that long ago, who created C-SPAN, and actually asked Lamb, "Do you think you've made people more combative?" I've always thought these are adults. They have been elected by their constituencies. And the constituency and the adults who have been elected ought to be able to figure out how to do this in front of cameras. And keep in mind at all times, that's my money, that's your money, and the people can watch his money. It's $4 trillion worth of tax money, and they ought to be able to do that work in public except in the case of a national security issue. He's totally right. He's totally right. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking to Stephen Brill, author of the new book, Tailspin, The People and Forces Behind America's 50-Year Fall and Those Fighting to Reverse It. Um, So let's talk about those efforts to stem what you see as a decline. Um, One of the points that you make is that uh, the steps towards meritocracy that were taken in the 60s and in the 70s, they ended up entrenching kind of this new elite in America. And it was an educated elite that, that secured these great education opportunities for their kids. Uh, You say there are a few colleges that are trying to make sure that elite does not stay entrenched and, like, you know, exclude new people. Uh, So let's talk about Amherst College and Baruch College, which you say are making big strides. Uh, Do you want to talk about what they're doing? Well, they're succeeding is what they're doing. Um, In the case of Amherst and a few other elite schools, um, including, you know, Princeton um, and Vassar, what they decided was, uh, uh, these are the elite schools, what they decided was, you know, they have generous uh, financial aid packages, as does Harvard and Yale. But the difference is they marketed their packages so that a kid who's graduating, you know, as the valedictorian in some high school um, in South Dakota will be marketed and told, you know, believe it or not, you can come to Princeton for free. Uh, whereas, you know, the average person... Uh, you know, graduating high school in South Dakota may think, well, you know, it's Princeton, it's got to be more expensive. So, you know, I'll go to the state school and pay the $10,000 tuition when, in fact, they could go to Princeton for free. Mm-hmm. Harvard and Yale do a lousy job at that. Mm-hmm. But Amherst and Princeton prove that you can do a good job of it. Now, uh, Baruch College is one of many of, you know, the state um, and city schools in New York and California and elsewhere that do an excellent job not only of, you know, recruiting people and charging them very little money, but having, you know, special programs meant to get them 
into the middle class when they graduate. And it's really um, a thrilling experience to you know, walk into the lobby of, of uh, Baruch College and see people you know, who are the, you know, whose parents are immigrants or cab drivers or whatever um, really preparing to take you know, upper middle class entry level jobs. Mm. And they're making it work. Now the irony is that in the environment we're in today, um, you know those uh, you know state and locally uh, run uh, universities and colleges are seeing dramatic cutbacks in uh, the right. funding they get. When in fact, in enhancing their funding is what we need to restore uh, you know the kind of epic, uh, uh, the kind of economic uh, mobility. Mm-hmm that we used to have. And by the same token, we need uh, the kinds of uh, you know, job training programs that I write about that the federal government has failed at since the 1960s when they promised it. And yet uh, there are some nonprofits that I write about that are doing a great job and proving it can be done, proving that you can take someone you know, who's a messenger or a bar bouncer and teach them how to code uh, you know, software without making them have a college degree, and you know they're placing them into these $85,000 and $100,000 a year jobs. It can be done, and the book is all about things like that that not only can be done, but that are being done. How do you prevent, um, you, you know, we talked about sort of the, the fact that the, you know, very smart lawyers and very smart people in finance had come up with all these sort of uh, funny little maneuvers to earn themselves more money and kind of slow slow down the work sometimes, or in the case of finance, maybe speed them up at a, to an unhealthy level. How do you ensure that will not continue to happen? And maybe it will happen in a meritocratic way. Maybe like the best immigrants and the best people out of Brook College and out of Amherst, and, you know, but will will get get into law schools, you know, in the future. But how do you know that this won't just continue to happen and that we won't be able to, like, fix roads or have OSHA requirements? Because, like, there's just too many barriers in the way. I guess I think I have this, this, this you know, naive optimism that, that this is a resilient country and that sooner or later in a democracy, even in a democracy so dominated by money, that people's, you know, sheer frustration sheer disgust with what's going on is going to force real change. And the people I write about in the book, for the people, for example, the people, you know, devoted, uh, you know, to campaign, you know, finance reform, Mm -hmm. um, they will have laid the groundwork for the kinds of reforms that suddenly the politicians will have to adopt because people are just so disgusted by money and politics. I mean, the you know, the polling on that is totally off the wall. It's so high, even now. And I think it's going to get more intense. You know, I think that there's going to come a time when, you know, so many people are calling the Social Security hotline, you know, to complain that they didn't get their checks mm-hmm. or their disability claim was unfairly denied, that, you know, almost like the Arab Spring, you know, people are just going to snap. And they're going to say, we can't have this anymore. We can't have a government that ignores us and doesn't work and that only worries about, you know, lowering taxes and reducing services. We are, by the way, the lowest taxed industrial democracy out there. We are not overtaxed. 
our deficit problem is because we don't tax people at the top anywhere nearly as much as any other country. It is no surprise that you know our uh, mass transit system and our highways you know, are so terrible compared to France or England or Germany or Asia. Uh, you know, just look at the taxes we pay, or I should say the taxes we don't pay. Is there anything that like an ordinary person, even if the ordinary person happens to be, you know, a high powered lawyer in a firm or a surgeon or something, is there anything that you feel like ordinary people can do while they're waiting for something to change, like while they're waiting for infrastructure to be built and all that? They're increasingly joining and supporting the kinds of groups I write about in the book, whether it's a uh, you know, giving money to uh, the job training program I read about in Queens or supporting uh, the bipartisan you know, policy center um, in Washington, which has all these plans on the shelf for how to solve in a bipartisan way the health care issues we have, the infrastructure issues we have. I think that um, you know, people should you know, support those kinds of groups or start groups of their own. And that's happening. I mean, you know, the activism that has happened uh, you know, since the 2016 election is, if anything, um, accelerating uh, the worse things get. Stephen Brill is author of the new book, Tailspin, The People and Forces Behind America's 50-Year Fall and Those Fighting to Reverse It. Stephen, thank you so much. Happy to be with you. Thank you again. website, we've got the short version of Stephen Brill's argument, which was recently published in Time magazine. That's at innovationhub.org. 